Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Financial Crime UK monthly podcast. My name is Chris Kirkbride and I lecture law at the University of Worcester. In this special edition, we'll be looking at the recent decision of the United Kingdom Supreme Court in the case of the Crown against Hilton. You can find the neutral citation for 2020 at UKSC 29. The case was concerned with confiscation orders and the interests of third parties and their rights to make a representation in respect of how they might be affected in the event of a confiscation order being made. The facts of the case are relatively straightforward. The respondent was convicted of offences relating to the overpayment of benefits under Section 105A of the Social Security Administration Northern Ireland Act 1992. Following conviction, the case was sent to the Crown Court for a confiscation order to be made. The judge in the Crown Court determined that the benefit which the respondent had received was £16,500, but a confiscation order in the sum of just over £10,000 was made. This lower sum was accounted for in the fact the defendant had no assets other than a jointly owned home, a home which he owned with her partner. It should be noted that at the material time, the respondent was estranged from her partner and they were not living together in the house. The judge in the Crown Court calculated that the house had a value of about £175,000. However, the house was subject to an interest-only mortgage and the mortgage debt accounted for about £153,000 of that. Consequently, the judge calculated the amount for the confiscation order at about half the equity which the respondent had in the property, so the sum of £10,000 was arrived at. It is worth noting at this point that there is a statutory provision which relates to circumstances where a confiscation order is made and a third party might have an interest in that property. Now, a third party can be either a fellow owner of the property, a co-owner, or it can be someone like a mortgagee, someone who will lend you the money to purchase the property. And that provision is Section 160, Large A, of the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002. Now, that's a statutory insertion. It was made by the Serious Crimes Act 2015. The provision has it that at the time a confiscation order is made, a court may, if it thinks appropriate for it to do so, determine the extent of the defendant's interest in such property. However, the court must not exercise the power in Section 160A unless it gives the person holding that interest, or possibly holding that interest, an opportunity, a reasonable opportunity, to make representations. Now, this statutory provision had not been complied with by the trial judge. No representations had been made either by the respondent's estranged partner nor the mortgagee. In fact, it transpired in the case that neither of those parties had any idea that the confiscation order uh, had been made, that the proceedings were taking place. Uh, therefore, the respondent appealed the decision of the Crown Court to the Court of Appeal of Northern Ireland on the basis of the trial judge's failure to uh, allow third-party representations. This, it said, or it was contended by the respondent, was a breach of Section 160A of the uh, Proceeds of Crime Act 2002. The Court of Appeal of Northern Ireland held that Parliament's intention had been clear. The language of Section 160A, subsection 2, was clear. Subsection 2, that's the provision which requires third-party representations to be made if they may or do have an interest, 
Well, that provision, subsection 2, was a mandatory provision, and that the power under section 160A to make a determination of the extent of the defendant's interest was not to be exercised without observing it. Consequently, the failure to allow representations by either the estranged partner or the mortgagee was a failure to engage subsection 2. The confiscation order was invalid and should be quashed. The Crown appealed to the Supreme Court. In the Supreme Court, a single judgment was delivered by Lord Kerr, with whom the other justices, Lady Arden and Lords Wilson, Lloyd-Jones and Bridge, agreed that the appeal should be allowed and the order of the trial judge was restored. Now, in coming to its judgment, the court emphasised that the confiscation process, at least in theory, can be two stages. The first stage, of course, is the confiscation stage, at which the court makes the confiscation order. The second stage, if it is needed, is the enforcement stage. But the enforcement stage is only needed where the defendant is in default of the confiscation order made at the confiscation stage. The Supreme Court was clear that the confiscation stage is quasi-automatic and that the conditions to be satisfied reflect the relative ease of that stage. It's a relatively straightforward stage of the procedures. The court is engaged really in an arithmetic exercise. It is working out what the figure is to put onto the confiscation order so that they can work out what is a statutory personal debt against the defendant, or in this case the respondent. And the sum which the court comes to reflects either the total extent of the defendant's enrichment or where there are not sufficient assets available so that in the event of default the order may not be met, then it can be reduced to a sum which is less than the enrichment uh, ordered. Now, the court then discussed the extent of the function of the insertion of Section 160A into the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002. The Supreme Court was clearly of the view that the insertion did not change the fundamental nature of the two-stage process. If the alternative were to be the case, then it would mean that third-party interests would essentially disrupt the confiscation process or confiscation proceedings. This might cause significant delay or even result in the postponement of the confiscation hearing while investigations could be made of any third parties who might have an interest so that they could be put on notice of the confiscation hearing. Section 160A is merely a power which the courts have to determine and that as a power that provision would only be used sparingly. The Crown Court judge in the case of Hilton had not made a determination at the confiscation stage. All he had really done was take account of the respondent's ownership interests in calculating the sum for the purposes of the confiscation order. This is not a determination for the purposes of 160. It is merely a calculation which is being undertaken. In consequence of it not being a determination, the court did not need to take the view either of the respondent's estranged partner or the mortgagee at that stage of the proceedings. However, the simple fact remained that those parties could still make representations at the enforcement stage if there was a default by the respondent. At that stage, of course, 
property interests are at risk, and therefore it is the logical stage for the interests and views of third parties to be taken into account. They are permitted to represent what impact might be had on the enforcement of the confiscation order against the defendant. Now, in terms of the impact of this decision of Hilton, nominally it could actually have only had a narrow impact because it was the confiscation provisions of the Proceeds of Crime Act as they applied to Northern Ireland. However, a mirror image of that provision is applicable to England and Wales and can be found in Section 10, large A, which is also an insertion into the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002 by the Serious Crimes Act 2015. Before this insertion had been made, a third party could not make any kind of representation which they had initiated before a court at the confiscation stage. Rather, the appropriate stage for such intervention was the enforcement stage after default on the confiscation order. The third party would then seek to make their representations, arguing what interest they had and how uh, large that interest was. This procedure was certainly well established, but it was thought that it was open to abuse and that an opportunity where a determination had been made should be presented or available at the confiscation stage. And that is why the insertion uh, was generated. Now, that change, of course, creates the potential, the potential for a conflict between the two-stage confiscation process and that new ability to take representations at the confiscation stage of the proceedings. So, to this extent, therefore, what the Supreme Court has done has rationalised the operation of the two uh, provisions, so the standard two-stage process of confiscation and the insertion made by Section 160A in Northern Ireland or made by Section 110A as applies to England and Wales. So it, it's welcome in the sense that it clarifies that the two-stage confiscation process is the primary process. It's the primary process, and that doesn't change simply because this additional power is made to make a determination at the confiscation stage. Essentially, that determination provision is subordinated to the two-stage quasi-automatic confiscation process. But this in itself does leave a few question marks over where we are now in terms of this determination stage. What is left of this insertion provision? What is left in it? Now, central to that provision is the concept of jointly owned property. But simply because property is jointly owned doesn't mean it's relatively straightforward and everybody gets an equal or similar amount from that property. It will be subject to various rules to determine outcomes, to determine ownership levels and so on. And that can really operate in respect of any type of property. I mean, for example, bank accounts can be jointly owned, but simply because I have a joint account, it doesn't mean I have an equal and joint interest in the property in that bank account or the funds deposited in that bank account. The ownership interests of bank accounts certainly turn on complex questions of legal presumptions, the relationship between the joint account holders, and investigation as to the intention of the parties who opened that joint account and why it was opened in joint names. So it's not necessarily straightforward. 
to make a determination where the property in question is a bank account. In the case of Hilton itself, the property was land, which I would suggest is even more complicated as an, a form of property for determination under either Section 160A or Section 10A of the Proceeds of Crime Act. Ownership interests in land, both legal and equitable, have been the subject of extensive litigation over the last decade and a half, from the cases of Stack and Dowden in 2007 and Jones and Kernot in 2011. Those cases had a dramatic impact on shifting questions of quantification in joint ownership cases. So really, they've served to complicate ownership interests in relation to land, not only where land is jointly owned, but also in those circumstances where land is in single legal ownership, but another party is claiming an interest in that property. So if it seems that certain standard types of property, like bank accounts, like land, may not be suitable for a determination at the confiscation stage, then what is the function of that provision? What sort of circumstance is it aimed at? Well, if we look at the explanatory notes to the Serious Crime Act 2015, they state that the determination process under Section 160A slash Section 10 should only be preserved for those relatively straightforward cases. Otherwise, more complex cases are simply resolved under the two-stage confiscation process. Well, what does relatively straightforward mean? Hilton wasn't a particularly difficult case itself. It was a relatively low-value asset. There was presumably equal joint ownership, although it's not entirely clear in the case. And there weren't many parties who could make a representation. There was the estranged partner and the mortgagee, the lender. But I suppose therein lies the problem with the case of Hilton. If the parties are estranged, there is the potential for hostility when it comes to the hearing and parties not being entirely straightforward with ownership interests and so on. A straightforward case, or a relatively straightforward case, would need a fairly extreme set of circumstances. The joint owners would need to be on very good terms. They'd each have to have a traceable contribution to the property, and that would keep things nice and clear for the purposes of a determination. It would probably also help if there wasn't a third-party mortgagee on the scene, so it was just a dispute between the defendant and their co-owner of the property. So actually, it is going to be pretty rare when this provision is used. It is likely to be, I would suggest, underused. One final point is worth noting uh, out of Hilton, and that is guidance is absolutely crucial. In order to understand the real operation of Section 160A and Section 10A, we need guidance on what amounts to a relevant determination. Now, the Court of Appeal has said that guidance is necessary. Reasons ought to be given if it is decided by a court that no determination is to be made under the provision. By giving reasons, only then can a practical and solid body of precedent be created, which future cases might then rely upon. <laughs>